Hi, I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have a distinct perspective on time. So we spend a lot of time on Time Sensitive talking about innovation. It's kind of the heart of, of what we do here. We're speaking to people in business, in the arts, in design, and beyond. And we're talking to them about global, really world-changing ideas, but sometimes it's simply changing something within themselves. Yeah, they're always constantly pushing the envelope. Yeah. And these are people who work tirelessly. They're they're diligently innovating over long periods of time, finding solutions for the world's problems and not doing it in this sort of like disruptive idea. It's really through independent spirit. Yeah, and and I think that's one of the reasons that we're excited about our season 3 sponsor, Alang Anzuna, because when you really look into that company, you realize that they're sort of definition or approach or ideology behind innovation is slow. A really, really, really slow approach to perfecting the work that they make. And it doesn't happen in kind of big bursts. It's just on a daily basis, getting better and better and better at all the small parts. So over time, what they create is a huge leap, Mm. but they probably don't see it on a daily basis. Mm. And it's so in line with the things we talk about here. And it's thanks to their support that we're able to bring you these episodes each week. So thank you, Langa. Andrew, this week on the podcast, you spoke to the artist Dustin Yellen, who founded Pioneer Works, a sort of arts nonprofit institution in Red Hook, Brooklyn. What'd you guys talk about? We talked about a lot of things. Dustin is one of these guys who is a kind of crucial fixture in the New York art world um, and somehow operates outside of that market in a way. Pioneer Works is one of the most exciting additions to the city in recent years. It's really one of the first institutions that combines art and science, that sees the need for a cross-disciplinary approach, that sees the need for a new kind of commons, a new town square, Mm. that sort of eliminates the socioeconomic kind of boundaries that keep people out of these kinds of experiences. And I think he's a real hero in that space. Mm. What I find so interesting about Pioneer Works is even as it's grown and, and, and scaled to a certain degree, it's still intimate. It's still, there's still like a quality about intimacy there. Yeah, and he talks about scale actually. And he talks about how scale can actually create a lot of issues when mm. growing when growing a project. But you know, we also get into his art, his worldview, a little bit of his history. Dustin's a really, really interesting guy. I'm excited to have him on. Yeah, excited to hear it. Here's Dustin with Andrew. Today in the studio, I'll be speaking with the artist Dustin Yellen, who operates a studio in Red Hook, Brooklyn, right next door to Pioneer Works, the cross-disciplinary cultural center that he founded in 2012. Welcome, Dustin. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me here. (laughs) You always seem to be curious about kind of where we're going, the speed at which we're moving towards kind of future. And you have two main points of focus in your kind of work life, which is your whole life in a lot of ways. Um, Your work and your life have always been kind of interwoven your own practice, and of course, Pioneer Works. And for people who may not be aware of Pioneer Works and who should be, tell me a little bit about Pioneer Works, what it is, what its values are. Well, I mean, I'll back up a little. I think I think of the work lately and that, that morphs as descriptive and prescriptive. And so my art making, again, if you want to call it that, practice of making things is sort of a descriptive practice of creating storytelling devices, almost like frozen cinema that tell stories about our species, its relationship to the planet, technology, the earth warming, mythology, history, and so on and so forth. And if we are facing the unprecedented challenges that it seems like we are in the last 200 years, going from several hundred million people to several billion to having an internet and 
artificial intelligence and mass agriculture all of it just changed in 200 yeah. years where we haven't even caught up with the change it appears that we're headed right towards a precipice yeah and a prescriptive measure for that would be pioneer works which is a modality to really rethink how people learn uh, how cultural production occurs how we can create states of discovery for those processes to happen. So it's really an experimental uh, social experiment. I said experiment twice. I must like that word. With a very simple mission, which is to build community. So bring people together through the arts and sciences to create an open and inspired world. So how do we bring people together really to think differently together about how we are going to to big species wide issues. Yeah. Yeah. Which but is using weird. using culture, and I when I say culture, I have to include sciences because I don't think that is always considered to be part of culture. But so again, to use the arts and sciences as a medium to get people unarmed and open and willing to express these issues and to create discourse around them. And over the years, you've kind of talked about the town square or like the commons. The, Reimagining the commons, yeah. Yeah, and, and so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that idea. Well, I think in a world where there's been a, a certain movement towards the commodification and commercialization of culture, mm -hmm. we are thinking about things being accessible and free. And mm -hmm. sometimes in higher academia, you know, brains are protected beyond behind lots of firewalls. So there's not a lot of access. And so to create a place where all these, you know, brains are accessible to everyone, not just to each other, instead of like standing in a circle all facing in, everyone's just standing in a circle facing out. And so that everyone can be interfacing with that. So I think of what is the commons. It used to be that hut in the middle of the village. There was a time when it was museums because they were free parks, theaters, right? And so there's been different forms, I think. And so we're just building another one. And I don't think it's a brilliant idea that I had that wasn't had before. I think this is something everybody thought about. Every young person, not every young person, do you know what I mean? I think everyone at some point was like, why isn't there a place where artists and scientists and technologists and musicians and writers and filmmakers were all in a building together, learning from each other, exchanging ideas, writing, reading, singing, talking, playing. I think you know better than anyone that it's not so easy. <laughs> I think it's extraordinarily challenging to realize that yeah. sort of vision. Thinking about it, though, is easy. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And, and, you know, you've done it in a very specific space. You've done it in Red Hook, Brooklyn. And mm -hmm. people on our show are from all over the world and may have never been to New York, may have never been to Brooklyn. So describe Red Hook a little bit and specifically why that's such a perfect place at this moment in time to do this. Mm. Well, I think for a couple of reasons. The community is composed of so many different people from so many different economic backgrounds and social backgrounds and and so that, that creates a beautiful spectrum. I think that it is a great test tube for what cities in the future are going to have to contend with, 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 the, with the waters rising and the earth warming, because we are in a flood zone and we're a neighborhood that is facing termination, you know, literally. And we're building... And you're right on the edge. We're right in it. We're, we're literally... So, you know, we had five feet of water in Sandy. We are built to get more water. We don't fool ourselves and say, oh, that's in another hundred years. We're ready for the water to come tomorrow and mm -hmm. then to clean up and keep going. But there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people that are going to be facing those issues. So it's a good place to think about it. Mm. We are a small village because we were cut off by the BQE which creates this sort of isolated small town vibration within the Gotham metropolis of New York City. I mean, it feels like a longshoreman's. Yeah, kind of. like a village, which is great though, because but it's still accessible to this. Yeah. 
So there's a lot of attributes. I went there just because I couldn't afford space in the city to make my art many years ago. So that's what brought me there was, you know, again, economics. I could afford a studio out there on a ground level to make heavy sculptures many years ago. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be near the water. Yeah. And early days, you know, you sort of saw it as a building that wasn't being used for what it should be used for. So a little bit of the history. You had been living in Tribeca, which is actually when I met you way back. You were making art mm -hmm. in a loft, which is probably now a you know $10 million loft or whatever. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it was a place you could afford to live in, and you were making art. And then you go to Brooklyn, and you start a sort of prototype, in a way, of a shared space on Imlay. Well, no. I mean, I think the ideas went way before that, though. Right. And, yeah, and, yeah. and in Chelsea, I had a place where everybody was an incredibly bohemian version Right, where there was a place to play music and lots of people were gathering. Mm. And, and then I think I've always unconsciously built these sort of places where people come together. And that was always the idea. But yes, then I found this building, which just blew my mind. Yeah. Uh, I'm, and I couldn't even, it was like I fell in love. I couldn't even breathe or sleep. I couldn't afford the building. And I had to beg everyone I know. And I begged and begged and it took months several months of begging and to even just figure out a way to get the building let alone what we would have to do to it right and then you you build it take us through a bit about those first early months you mentioned sandy a little bit which is a kind of phenomenal story well i mean we started fixing up the building yeah and i was you know doing what i've always done which is you know someone would be like i'd be like if you buy that sculpture we got windows and if you get that piece of art you know we're gonna have bathrooms and that that one and and it's a massive space. I mean, yeah. this is a... Describe the space a little bit. Well, it's a Civil War uh, ironworks, you know, with the gardens. We have a little bit under 50,000 feet. And and it's beautiful. It's wood and brick and 40-foot ceilings and the volumetric dimensions of a 15th century basilica. It's bananas. Yeah. But it required a full... And we're actually still in it, renovation. You know, now we're in the more grown-up version of elevators and... And sprinklers and egresses and kind of the final stages. You have a reception desk with screens above it. Looks like a museum. Yeah, we now we have beautiful yeah and bookstore and we're building an observatory and we're yeah. building more classrooms. Yeah, so yeah, we're in a new phase. Yeah, which is amazing. But shortly after you finished building it, Hurricane Sandy came to New York. Right, we were in it. We weren't finished. We were fully in renovation mode. I remember you had done the floor. This exquisite which, floor. Right. A beautiful, radiant floor, which is resilient to flood. Yeah. And luckily, our architect put the mechanicals on the second floor just because it worked with the way the cores were built, which meant that we had just installed three boilers in a crazy mechanical room, literally hadn't even turned it on yet, and the, and the flood comes. Right. And because it was there, we didn't have to replace it. We would have lost another year or something like this. Yeah. So then, yeah, the hurricane comes. I'm there in Red Hook. It's the wildest thing I've ever, one of them I've ever experienced. And I was there. I tried to even take my canoe out. But yeah, I, I was picking things up and the water kept coming up. And the next thing you know, I'm upstairs with the dogs and the water's coming up, coming up. It's hitting the picture frames on the walls. You know, the drum kit, the refrigerator and the dining room table all became like soup. Like the refrigerator was the chicken and the drums were the carrots. And they're all like moving through this, making these crazy sounds. It was bananas. And I wasn't thinking about loss. I was like, I can't believe nature. Look at this. Yeah. Look at this. And then in the morning after the water went back out, I went downstairs and I was like, wow. You know, because no one realizes it happened in like 15 minutes or something. No, I it mean, was more than that. I remember it was hearing hours. about it. It was like this. It was the water slowly coming under the door. And then it was like, oh, I'm so oh, glad that I'm here going. because I'm picking up things and we're going to get four inches of water. And I had friends of mine who used my studio. It was a very communal place. So I was like, this is great. I'm, I'm the one who didn't leave when they told me to. So I'm going to pick up everyone's stuff. And I'm picking things up. And then the water goes from like two to four to six to a foot. And then I'm like, wow. And I go in my sanding room and I grab some rubber boots. And again, I'm like, I'm glad I'm here. And then the water's like 18 inches. And I'm like, next thing you know, it's now it's starting to keep going up. Then I realized the electricity's on. 
and I'm standing in the water. This is bad. So so I told Gabriel and, and my friend, get the dogs, get the food, go upstairs. I'm going to turn the mainframe off. The city hadn't done it yet. And at that point, the chaos, so the water was really going up fast to the point where like went above the tables. Because in this neighborhood in West Chelsea, I looked out the window. I went to give one of my kids a bath. It was like kind of bedtime at, at that moment. I came back out after the bath, 10, 15 minutes, and there was eight feet of water in our block. That fast. That fast. Wow. See, us was slow. It happened really, really quick, and I couldn't believe how quickly yeah. it just took over. We'd never seen that before. Anyhow, so you go through this thing, and then some people would kind of go, I don't know. I'm kind of done. That was the last thing on your mind. You just started rebuilding. and keep- It wasn't even on my mind, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, mean I went through 9-11. I went through... A lot of things. Yeah. And so in terms of Pioneer Works, back to, to where you've been, yeah. you have this incredible group of people, Jan 11, you have an amazing team with capabilities from all sorts of areas. That didn't just happen right away. Tell me a little bit about the sort of time it took, the pressure it took to build Well, I think to it was something I was doing subliminally, subconsciously, my whole adult life. Mm. And then the building really just became the container that activated a life of dreaming. Mm. And then a lot of a lot of coincidence or fate or whatever brought people like Jan Eleven and so many people to the what I call the table. I think of Pioneer Works as this sort of meta table and uh and gravity begets gravity. So more people, more people, more people it was strange. It was almost like, you know, I'd been building the crystal ball forever, not physically, but then once there was a container, everything just went bananas. And the thing is in seven or eight years or whatever, gone much faster and, and become much more than I would have imagined. Cause I wasn't, ima- I was imagining this sort of just utopic feeling or vision or idea. I didn't know what it meant to administer something like that, you know, to have 40 or 50 people working and, administer an institution, if you will. None of that ever crossed my mind. And of course, through the processes, I learned about the genesis of MIT and CalArts and Caltech and Bauhaus and Black Mountain and and lots of interesting moments in history, you know, looking at the Renaissance. And Which are always about the people. Humanism and all of it. It's all about the people. We went there because they were teaching at the time. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that one of the things that you've been so... Uh, successful at is drawing the great minds that are willing to kind of go on the edge and push through with an idea, not knowing exactly where they're going. People, it's everything. Yeah, it's everything. And so to describe Pioneer Works right now, mm. at this moment in time, it's all of a sudden very grown up. In in a physical way, you go there and the, I remember when you first did the the garden in the back, you'd sort of bought out a garden center, done some deal with a garden center. There were these little trees and this very beautiful little thing that you guys did. And now it's like, an incredibly well-landscaped garden with grown-up trees. And you sort of see this place actually physically growing mm. um, in the same space, which is very, very beautiful. And right now you've gotten very serious. You're, you're raising money on a capital campaign. You have a new executive director. Give us a bit about what the current moment at Pioneer Works is. I mean, I always like to think it's the beginning. So I yeah. think I'm born to think it's the beginning. Yeah. At the moment, yeah, as you stated, we're in a sort of stabilization phase of saying, like, well, these are all the things we need to do to stabilize for 50 or 100 years, potentially. So so that's what we're doing, yeah. We're we, you know, building an incredible board of directors. Eric Shiner, our executive director. Gabriel, our artistic director. Jana, our science director. Uh, we're looking at creating a whole department of letters next year. We see that the arts, sciences, music, and technology are really percolating together and now we want to to bring more of the narrative arts in there so yeah so it's it's about we're just kind of inventing it as we go so yeah well one of the things that i've always been impressed with watching your journey is that with these massive ambitions and big projects like really really big projects nothing's small that you get into you also don't seem to carry around a ton of stress i mean you get busy but you don't really get that stress and i'm curious how you kind of over time learned to kind of take deep breaths, slow down, and where you're at now with that? I would say that there's a few things. No matter how much there is to learn, there's infinitely more that we don't know. So we never know. 
So I would say, if you go through life knowing that you don't know, and if you go through life knowing that a hundred years is an hour, a minute, a second, if you go through life not drinking your own Kool-Aid at all and not taking it seriously, any of it seriously, because you can't, because that would be crazy to, if you think about the billions of planets and the, the way that particles are colliding and giving us this illusion of what this is, you can't take it seriously. So, so I think that's, that's how I do that is I just don't, as much as I, care and I've given my life over to this mission, if I ceased to exist in this body tomorrow, I w- would have thought it was a wonderful run. And I, w- I would say, let's celebrate. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? It's just, I don't, it's so mystical, mysterious, and infinite, this reality that I can never take existence too serious. So that might be one reason. The other reason is potentially I've been exposed to lots and lots of tragedy firsthand. And therefore, within that tragedy, and I've also been exposed to so much privilege. So within that privilege, how could I at all go through life with anything but wonder and gratitude for the fact that I'm experiencing this? It's very beautiful. You know, you also have had this consistent desire to sort of invent your reality. You invent your reality mm-hmm. over and over and over. And I've always been kind of curious where this comes from. You know, what was your upbringing like? Where's this curiosity and ambition to invent a reality come from? I don't know. I mean, I think I was very loved by my mother, even though I was a bit of a latchkey child and she was not around for the first 20 years. There was still this force field around me. And I think, you know, I was very lucky because when I was 18, I was exposed to a, a very interesting scientist who exposed me to lots of ideas. And not only ideas, but people, meaning Buckminster Fuller or Nikola Tesla or Pablo Neruda or Rilke or Dostoevsky or anything. And I think when I was young and I didn't know anything or anyone or any, you know, wasn't exposed, those things really opened up the doors of my perception, you know, Huxley. Yeah. Uh, so... So I think that the way I was exposed, my parents were not cultured. So a lot of my friends in New York grew up with these cultural lighthouses as ways to where I got exposed to it all pretty quickly between 18 and 20 Mm. and completely opened up the way I perceived the world. And so I think Pioneer Works is modeled on some of those ideas of that, you know, you might come last night to see Brian Greene, but then you learn about Jamie Warren or you go to see Gloria Steinem and you learn about Jacoby Satterwhite or you go to see Werner Herzog and you learn about Ben Lerner or you go, you know what I mean? So I I really think that curiosity is such a great way to learn. It's like you don't need to have someone telling you to memorize dates or memorize text as much as just a natural born curiosity. Yeah, and you've also had a kind of entrepreneurial spirit your whole life. I mean, didn't you like have some watch business as a kid or something? Yeah, but that was just to get by, you know, or to like yeah. get freedom. I've always had a undying desire for a boundless freedom. And and I think that's ultimately what settled me on practicing art was that that was the thing that was infinite and free, that there were never going to be, there was never going to be a wall around it. When did you start making art? I mean, I made it as a kid, but didn't take it seriously. Mm-hmm. I didn't really take it seriously until I was like 18, 17, 18. Which is when you moved to New York. Yeah, maybe 19, 18, 19, yeah. And you came to New York, we talked a little bit earlier about this Chelsea Loft you had and sort of your early memories. Mm-hmm. What was it like at that time when you moved to New York for you? I mean, I was pretty young and pretty wild and a different person. I don't even know what it was like. I mean, I was so wild. I was meeting people. I I was doing cartwheels through the streets. I was being exposed to everything. I didn't know about anything. I didn't know about the art world. I didn't know about anything. I was very impressionable, I think. And it took me years, I think, to, to get my feet. Or maybe I'm still getting them. 
Did any sort of early events happen in New York that drastically shifted your perspective on New York, on yourself, on life? Lots. Yeah. Are there any that come to mind that you want to talk about? Uh, well, just lots of loss. Yeah. I, mean, I won't get into the details of that, but lots of loss, probably. Lots yeah. of love, lots of incredible relationships forged, but then also lots of loss. Yeah. So up to now, I mean, this is sort of shooting ahead, but now you're in New York, mm. simultaneously running Pioneer Works and next door your own studio, which is quite an operation. Mm. Tell me a bit about how your studio operates. What's the kind of structure and ambitions? I mean, it's a bit of an idea factory. Yeah. So I have lots of ideas and only a certain amount of bandwidth to realize them. And so it's almost like a, a movie studio. I'm making frozen movies all the time. You know, I just finished The Politics of Eternity, which is this really crazy narrative artwork and just finished an artwork this week, a psychogeography where you have tubes of water going through floating islands uh, with animal-headed humans inhabiting these islands. And then the chest filling up with water and then coming out the arms and then drowning the body. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, so the studio is just always many, 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 many years behind the ideas and always just trying to catch up with the things that I'm working on. So I'm working on sculptures, which I think of as frozen cinema. I'm working on the augmented reality project right now, which will come out a first version of it will come out in April. I'm working on the bridge I'm working on. Which we'll get into all these specifically. And I want to start with the idea of time with your work. So you talk about frozen movies and, mm -hmm. and something that filmmaking, photography, and I think your work, um, a three-dimensional version of that kind mm -hmm. of optical expression does, is it either expands, compresses, or simply stops time. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've been so interested in with your work is how long it takes to complete the pieces. And what value comes out for you or what insights are you able to draw from the period of time you're able to work on a piece simply because they take a really long time? What do you go through during that time? Do you change your mind? Do you make new decisions? World building. So I can really contemplate the world that I'm building and I can make notes, which are almost like scripts, and say, oh, here I'm going to add a Masonic symbol and there I'm going to add drones delivering fruits and I'm going to put Icarus over there and Sisyphus over there and wait a minute, the way time is working in the future it was hard-edged and geometric and in the past it was more organic so I'm going to change the shapes of these caves accordingly. It gives me time to really think about what the thing will be at the end and then work towards that end I think S super slowly yeah. It's not like abex or action or you know gesture. It's very thoughtful. But within that th is an extraordinary amount of room to play and to to have fun and keep thinking about it. So I think that's maybe the advantage of taking so much time to make a work is that I can keep adding things like oh I'm going to put you know a weeping willow here and I'm going to create an AI under the water there that's going to capture the data that's trapped in the rocks over here and then and then in the cliffs over there I'm going to add Egyptian and Roman and oceanic artifacts that will tell histories that are hidden in the sort of archaeology of the piece. And then oftentimes you're pulling source material that is existing imagery. Oh, I'm always doing that. I have a whole library that, that's like a cutting room that's a, an internet of paper that's being classified. Drawers of icebergs and humans and animals and drawers of mushrooms and, and and drawers of architectural components and drawers of mountains and this becomes a place to, to to call from because i'm thinking about the work being almost dna maps of our species through our found images and i think we'll have a different or already getting a different relationship to paper so these become uh, ways to you know also i think about you know what cannot a machine make and so I think these works, a machine can print a Caravaggio or a Van Gogh now, probably even a Cornell at some point soon. So, But because there's tens of thousands of found images that are trapped within these compositions, it's, it's very difficult for an AI to build one. Which is fascinating. You know, what, what can we still uniquely do? Yeah. Which is back to where we started in a way. 
a lot of the thinking about where are we going, the speed at which we're going somewhere, and how can I somehow get an insight out of that, influence that, or create a picture of that. Because I, I think right now we think of images, first of all, there's been a loss in value in the image. Along with the ubiquity of an image has come this sort of loss in value for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, as anyone who practiced photography seriously, they're sort of recognizing the crisis of that medium right I'm, now. I'm a, I mean, I, photography was one of the first things I was fell in love with you know, yeah. in a dark room in whatever grade at school. Mm-hmm. And this was something that at the time was huge for me. I was like, wow, it was in the dark room. I was like, this is the only thing I like to do at school. But as you said, the, the ubiquitous nature of it, it wasn't something even now, contemporary photography doesn't really turn me on because it feels everywhere. It feels like my camera, my eyes are the camera. Yeah. And you're not looking into the internet, the sort of archive of imagery, and then printing it out, using it in your in your works. Gen- generally, no. I mean, I will. It's not, if you need uh, something, yeah, yeah. But it's very unusual. Yeah, mostly you're pulling from printed imagery from a time when the image itself had more value, mm. which is really interesting. And the printing processes were different. Yeah, yeah. And so back to the idea about the time it takes to make the work. You know, you also change throughout that. You meet new people every day. You think of new ideas. You read new books. You're constantly evolving and changing because of the kinetic quality of your curiosity. Have you noticed that the pieces change and you're thinking about when you started, you're not thinking about things the same way and you have to kind of go back and shift things from the beginning or is it generally kind of a straight shot forward? No, it feels pretty straight because the works are, well, I mean, I I think a lot about the works, so. Yeah, and they become a kind of roadmap in a way. And they roadmap to the next work. Yeah, and, and also to kind of the choices you've made. I mean, people talk about this idea of vision, you know, which is always a hard thing to understand, but it really is, especially in your work, very clearly an aggregate of your choices, these sort of pieces. They become a roadmap of your choices. So how do you resist patterns, repetitions, when you're working in such a specific medium and such a specific process? Well, because it's it's because it's infinite, it's endless. Yeah, it's not like I'm making color field paintings with just, you know what I mean. I, I I'm. It's the content is what is yeah, what's helping I'm, you create. I'm telling more. really complex, uh, circular, infinite, unfolding stories. And I want to get to the bridge a little bit because that's sort of one of the most interesting projects that you're thinking about. Definitely one of the most physically ambitious. Describe what the bridge is. It's really simple. And where it's at right I'm just now. Taking, I'm taking a, a super tanker, a boat that moves fossil fuels around, and the boat that we're looking at is uh, not terribly large when it comes to super tankers, but it's, it's about twice the size of the Statue of Liberty, and we're going to simply pick it up. Uh, it'll be the I believe the largest lift in history. We're going to pick it up and put it on its nose and build a monument to the end of oil called the bridge. And we're going to code this monument for about a million and a half people to take elevators up to the bridge of the boat, which will be at the top every year, and learn about, through the experience, learn about the inner workings of the earth warming. So the whole visitor experience will take you through carbon and technology and the history of how those things affect us. So it's really a monument to the end of fossil fuels. And it will hopefully be a bit of an economic engine as well because observation deck economics will help to raise funds for protections and conservation. And how close to realization are you, do you think? Well, I mean, it was always like in the vein of Bucky Fuller or Super Studio or you know, just a conceptual project. But actually we've, we're now in, in phase two of a deep technical study where a group has shown extraordinary interest to realize the project and Arup, an engineering firm, is working on it and Bjarke has been helping advise on it and lots of people are involved in the thoughts around it. And there's a group now that has the capacity and, and, and is doing a deep, deep second technical study and where would it be i can't say yeah can't say Mm. so the bridge the work pioneer works all of that is a lot tell me a little bit about how important it is for you to actually change location it's actually something bjarke and i talked about a lot on our episode of this podcast Mm. and talk about it in life a lot this idea of needing to physically change location 
so that your growth can kind of catch up with you. Because when you're you're in one place, you kind of get stuck. Yeah, I mean, I, I make it a habit. I spend a lot of time in Hawaii and surf and hike. I like probably prefer to be in nature. I prefer nature to anything. Yeah. <laughs> and then I spend a lot of time, you know, visiting island communities, Borneo, Papua New Guinea, going to the Amazon. I basically want to see the entire planet. So every year I, I take trips that help realize that Africa, because I think it helps again to lubricate the relativity nerve. And specifically with indigenous communities that you've been interested in, mm. there's this new book out by Julia Watson called Low Tech. I'm sure you're mm -hmm. somewhat aware of it. Are you also specifically kind of looking at the ways they're living and what they're doing far better than the ways we're living? Yeah. Yeah, I think I am. I mean, yeah. I made a movie about it years ago called Little Grandfather. We didn't do much with it yet, but but uh yeah, I mean, I'm I'm I love to see the myriad ways in which humans construct their systems to administer their culture. Yeah. And the idea of luxury for you is very much evolved into that. I mean, you're not someone who thinks of luxury in a kind of specific socioeconomic way. And oftentimes you've come back from these trips and said, you know, they're living in this really luxurious way, actually, compared to the way they're doing it. Mm. Is that also part of it, a sort of redefinition of the idea of desire and, and world building? I think it's good to, again, have the relativity to know that with all the stuff that we have here in New York City, with, with our fancy plumbing and our fancy hot water and our fancy mattresses and, and transportation systems and, and what have you, that that could be stripped completely from us and we could be living under a coconut tree, eating an avocado, <laughs> drinking out of a river, and and know that we have it all in that. Fantastic. The one thing that I did want to get more into with you, if I'm thinking about it now, is kind of how you see time, because you do see time in a very different way. We don't just have anyone on here. I mean, all of our guests are incredibly focused on this idea of time management, and they all kind of honor their time in this amazing way. And they found agency through their perspective well, I, on I, time. I have a weird relationship to time because... Well, it perplexes me. I mean, I don't believe in it, right? I think you don't believe in time. Well, I, I think everything is endless and infinite, and that 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 we can access the past and the future simultaneously in the present if we can figure out how to do that neurologically. So, so yes. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that there's probably ways. If you think about the sun or a cell, you think about a star. If you think about micro, macro. If you think about you know neurons and protons. If you think about different ways we quantify matter and consciousness, I think there might be ways in which to simultaneously be aware of all of those spaces and motions at the same time. Therefore, as much as I do feel like I am dying slowly with this body and that it will t cease to exist, potentially maybe consciousness won't, energy won't matter will keep going. And so so I, I don't, you know. And do you think of that as sort of a soul? Do you think of that as something that think, has relationships with others? I think language has tremendous limits. I mean, the word soul. What does that mean? Yeah. It's so, I, I think of it as something that has a recognizable identity to others, that it's part of something. Mm -hmm. That it connects with others, that it shares something. A particular sort of pattern. Yeah. 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 A particular configuration of protons. You've also been incredibly agile and flexible in how you've approached your life. So do you, have you had to kind of learn to get better at that or it's just kind of always how you've been? Were you like that as a kid? I think I've always been like that. I think if anything, I'm challenged by, as you said, how do I, with the information, how do I make a decision to go to... Arkansas or Colorado or Stockholm or Arizona or Switzerland in six months. It's like my mother will say, oh, you know, you're coming home for Christmas on which day? And I'm like, I don't know where I'm going to go on Mar in March. And you're asking me about December. I don't like that. I don't want to be put on a course that's so predetermined. And so that is my challenge with what I'm working on. 
and folks are trying to schedule me, you know, and I am committing to things like this ahead of time, many things ahead of time. Yeah. More and more things ahead of time. And that's challenging because I kind of want to do those things. But then I have to say, yeah, I mean, even tonight I'm going to, you know, see a friend and then another friend. And I'm like, oh, that means I have to be somewhere at this particular moment and then I have to get in a car and be at this other place yeah and so I don't know I think the future holds some sense of reclusivity for me yeah as I get older I think I'll retreat into nature a lot more yeah and I think that happens to a lot of people yeah you meet people at the older or, or the sort of more advanced stage in their life and their their desire to be around other people weakens and their desire to go inward strengthens and I, kn I know with you that you've been so focused on going inward and really trying to understand yourself inside and you've given and you may have always been like that but you've definitely spent the last say 10 years really looking outward because you've been building a community yeah. it's like how do you build a community and go in and go in yeah you know or just like let's leave it at how do you build a community this is something that is 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 kind of buzzy right now you know community building community building. what what is it really it doesn't happen right away it's not like well in six months we've got a community mm. your community has taken enormous amounts of time mm. to build going back to earlier when we were talking about imlay street you know you may have been doing that forever but that really was formalized in a way as the first kind of space where you really were building a community inside of another community i don't know i feel like I like red hook was a community yeah. You know what I mean? And you were building your own smaller one. And then as Pioneer Works got bigger and bigger, you're now a big part of that real community. So you have your own, but it's connected, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. How have you noticed the sort of speed at which a real community, authentic community takes to build? Is it something that can happen in the short term? I've never really thought about it because I'm just in the middle of doing it. Mm. And I don't think like that. It's funny, I never even think, I know I use the word build community, it's in our mission. So sometimes I think I should change it to just bring people together. But I like the word community. But doing it for so long, it was never like, I'm going to build community. It was always like, how do we get everybody together? That was it. Like, how do we just get everybody together to agree to build the world that they want to live in? That was the thing. It's always been the thing. And it's like if I ask someone, and I do this regularly, what's the most pressing issue facing the species? I ask this question every week, sometimes every day to someone. I meet someone, oh, what is the most pressing issue do you think facing our species? And I often get the same answers, which are climate, inequality, machine learning. The nuclear issue is still as present as ever. I think there's lots of them. But at the end of the day, actually, I think it's just, how do we get along? How do we figure out how to work together across economic, political, geographic, religious divides? If we can get rid of those divides somehow and just work together, then figuring out how to make every air conditioner in a developing country have a lesser carbon footprint will be easy. How to get away from fossil fuels faster, will be tenable. Figuring out how to make long-range air travel electric and cleaner doable, all of it will be possible if we worked together as a species. And so that is where the challenge is. It's not about the technology, really, anymore. It's not about anything else than figuring out how to get eight or 10 billion people with a shared worldview. And yeah. that's where culture, and again, science, plays the role of steward. Yeah, and I mean, you've also got this little lab for that. I mean, I'm sure there's conflict all over the place within Pioneer Works, within your studio, within your life. I mean, it's, what have you kind of learned about conflict resolution since you've started these sort of bigger projects? I mean, again, for me, conflict is like... I'm going to die in 60 minutes. Be that would be a conflict to the, to the mission. <laughs> but but the other kinds of conflict I'm very conflictless. Well, you are, but you're in a leadership position where there's conflict. 
all the time, I'm sure. Yeah, but you put a bunch of people together. But I things happen. It's not so. There's not too much actually. That's good to hear. Yeah, I mean, we talk about this like, how are people going to get along? It's like this idea of this empathic. Yeah, understanding uh, within of the our other. organization, there's not a lot of conflict. That's great. I think that's rare for an organization. Really? Yeah, we're small. I think it's not that rare for a small organization, is it? I don't know. Yeah, I think that the idea of everyone getting along and us being able to kind of have a shared worldview and a species-wide understanding of our needs, often these things can happen through major, major trauma like coronavirus. Yeah, this global pandemic, yeah. Yeah, and the markets start to crash and things start to happen. Yeah. People start to get very worried. Well, I mean, I mean, I woke up today going, wait, these trips that are planned, these speaking engagements I have in March and April and May... Are they happening? You know what I mean? A lot of things have been cut off because of it. We'll find out. Salone, you know, a lot yeah. of the big things are, are being canceled. These things also tend to happen out of a lack of context. One of the issues that we talk a lot about on this show is the lack of context and how context is all the all-important factor in the truth. And I think going back to Pioneer Works, I do want to say specific about that because it's such an incredible organization is that context has been a big part of whether it's in your mission or not, everything is about placing a kind of context. Science is in the context of art. Art is in the context of science. As you're shaping pioneer works and you're shaping a true cross-disciplinary institution, does context come up? Do you guys talk about this? Do you guys talk about the, the need for context? I mean, a lot of the reasons we are where we are with Silicon Valley, with things, is context was kind of taken out of the conversation. Move fast and break things. I think we think about it, but I think it also is natural to the state of what's going on there because of the people. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, the people are the context and the programming is the context. So whatever science is happening in the building or whatever art is happening in the building or whatever music is happening or whatever writers are writing in the building at the time is the context. So again, that comes right back to people the collection of souls that are colliding within the container is the context. When you think about 30 years out, 50 years out, making these plans for Pioneer Works, 100 years out, what do you imagine Pioneer Works to look like? Uh, it vacillates, you know. There are moments where I am just want to go to the woods. <laughs> I don't want to think about that. And then there are moments where I go, wow, this could be what you know, what a Stanford is in a hundred years. This could be Stanford or Oxford or Harvard or, do you know what I mean? It could be a futuristic center for learning. Although I worry about scale a lot. So maybe not, maybe it's these pods, maybe it's these micro community centers that are networked physical spaces. What do you worry about with scale? Well, what do I worry about with scale? I worry about this idea that, imagine you're sitting there with your wife and kids and your friends, and they have some kids, and you're in the woods. And you're like, all right, we're living in the woods. I've got four kids. My friends got four kids, and their friends got four kids. We got to build a little house. We're going to build a little house so that our kids can go to the little house. And I'm going to teach the kids about photography. And I'm going to teach the kids about medicine, the other person. And the other person's going to teach the kids about architecture. Great. A little schoolhouse, right? A little house in the woods where the kids go to learn. But then a few years go by and those kids have kids. And then those kids have kids. And then those kids have kids. And then the next thing you know, you're like, you're the architect and you're like, I need to build a building to teach enough architects to build enough structures to house all the kids. And the doctor, maybe it's your wife, she's the doctor. She says, this is great, but we have so many people getting sick. I need to build a hospital and I need to build a building just to train doctors to teach care at the scale and next thing you know the hospital's over here with a building to teach people the architects are over there to teach people how to build towns to house the kids that are having kids that are having kids and then the, you know there's a little music school over here but lots of people are interested in music now and without thinking accidentally through scale everybody's been separated and information and knowledge has been siloed. And therefore, it wasn't intentional, 
But all of a sudden, the musicians aren't talking to the doctors. The doctors aren't talking to the architects. The architects aren't talking. You're describing modern academia. But I don't think it was an intentional thing. No, of course not. Thing. So that's when I, when I talk about scale, I'm very thoughtful about, well, maybe we want, maybe we'll make more than one Pioneer Works, but maybe we'll keep them all very small so that everybody's colliding. That's what I worry about with scale, is the second you start really having to walk two blocks, you know, and the astrophysicists are in one building and the applied physicists are in another building, you know, and the computer scientists are in another building, I think that can break down the speed within which our civilization can evolve. Yeah. Well, it's a much more beautiful thought to think of Pioneer Works at the scale it is, maybe a little bigger, and then there's another one. Right. And then another one. And it's more horizontal. That's what I'm thinking. So, yeah. And we want a concert hall imminently in New York. We would like to have a concert hall with music studios in the building that's adjacent. And then we have some ideas in the garden. I mean, you've seen the models, classrooms, whatnot, observatory, cafe. Then we feel like we're at a good scale. We don't need to go bigger. It's like this idea. What I love about the observatory is that you have this idea. It's kind of like Andre Magnuson's lights off stars on project like everyone has a basic human right to see the stars yeah and the idea of having a free observatory in new york city that's real that's not a telescope you know that you're you're carrying around not a small amateur yeah. telescope but a real observatory yeah. to see the sky that's that's a civil service so we're very excited we're we're working hard on that yeah yeah well we're hoping for the best for Pioneer Works. It's been a huge addition to the city and the artistic community here. People love it. I hope more people come to see it, support it, and realize some of these things like the observatory. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you. Extra thanks to our season three sponsor, Langa, the German watchmaker, redefining limits of micromechanical engineering and creating tomorrow's classics. You can find more about Langa at their website, A-L-A-N-G-E-S-O-E-H-N-E.com. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive Podcast on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. 